who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are watching and listening to the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max and Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the Jam Bunker, and we are very excited to have on the program today Evan Morgan Williams, whose short story collection, Stories of the New West, is out in September. Also very excited because he listens to and likes the program. So he has a gigantic bio, and we're not going to go through it, but here's the highlights that you need to know. He's published more than 50 uh, short stories in places such as the Kenyan Review and Alaska Quarterly, which are two fantastic magazines. He has an MFA from the University of Montana, which is a great writing school. He's taught public school for 20 years, and he's had a writers in the school residency and two AWP writer to writer mentorships. Uh, his work has been anthologized in several books, and his story in Weber, the Contemporary West, earned the magazine's annual prize for the best work of fiction. He's a good, prolific writer. Very happy to have him here. Before we get to that interview, we have a little bit of business that we always cover. So the jam proper comes out every Wednesday, and there's a couple things you can do to spread the word about that and this program, which is the first, tell your friends about us, and the second, Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and particularly if you listen to Apple Podcasts. They allow you to leave a written review and a star review. All of that helps us get found by other people. You can also pop on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review there, or head to the contact page at thewritersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. You can check out the video podcast series either on the website or on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. If you're looking for a book to read, you can click on that bookshop link on our site, buy any of the books of anybody who's been on the program. If you're trying to figure out what book you should read, we have book reviews there for you. And if all of that is too much, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter and all of that will show up once a month in your email box. 
You can also support the entire Solid Listen network by clicking on the Patreon button. Just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes and bonus content from everybody on the network. It was lovely to talk to Evan, and you'll see he is just this infectious sort of bubbly personality. It's also fascinating for me to talk to short story writers because of all the fiction that I've ever written, that's the only thing that I've ever really experimented with. I have this whole gigantic folder of like terrible short stories that I wrote in college and just after. And the form is so interesting to me in the same way poetry is like, I can't really do them, but they're so concise and so sort of boiled down that everything becomes very important in a way that is different when you're doing like a nonfiction book, which is what I do. So I'm always, I always enjoy talking to people that do the same thing that I do, but do a different version of it and, and sort of the struggles in the, in the, in the process that they go through that. And since his voice is very particular about the West, like he literally embodies this just one area and that's what his work is about. So I find that interesting. If you listen to the program, you hear me talking about finding your voice a lot. And like, that's the big struggle that writers have. And so finding somebody that has done that and then in a form that I don't do, is just a fun conversation. And he's like the nicest person in the whole world. So I think you're going to enjoy today's show. So I appreciate you guys stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I. I appreciate you guys uh, spreading the word about us. I hope that your day is going well. I hope that you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you're taking care of each other. And now sit back and enjoy my conversation with Evan Morgan Williams. Uh, yeah, everything I've done is in that realm. Um, I once, I attended Tin House way back. Oh, wow. Way back in 2009. Um, I have a teacher stipend for continuing ed, and I spent it at Tin House one year. And I got an audience with an agent, and I went in and I showed her a list of, you know, I've gotten published in uh, Alaska Quarterly Review and uh, Kenyan Review. You know, wow. I got some good hits. I got yeah, some yeah. good hits. And I said, where, where do I go with this? And she said, honestly, if you're looking at a collection of, of short stories, you're not going to get an agent for that. There are exceptions like George Saunders and um, uh, John Paul Lahiri. Yeah. If I, mis I think I mispronounced her name. But in general, she said, no, you're going to need to look at small presses, university presses, independent presses. So that's what I did. I, I shopped it around to contests. And um, yeah, it's a world of you know, a university press where my first book... My first book won the contest at yeah. um, uh, BKMK Press. It's a university I like that you, press. You have, I've noticed that you have the star, too, from the I, – I know that one. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. <laughs> after, after publication, it got the Ippy Gold Medal for uh, short story collections. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but a small press, especially with the university – um, they, they really took good care of the book. They have a little bit deeper pockets because they might get, be getting subsidized by a university. Yeah. And so they can afford to, you know, have a larger print run. They can afford to send out review copies a little bit more wide. They can afford to enter it in some contests, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you know, the royalties are still the very, very small. Yeah. Um, having said that, it's interesting, though, with the Ippy Award, you you're kind of intersecting with um self-published books mm -hmm. independent independent presses yeah yeah um and then university presses um so i did my second book 
I self-published it. I love and, that you have them all sitting there. Like that's yeah, the most, that's the most like self thing ever. Like I'm just here's everything I've done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a visual person. I'm a visual <laughs> person, so I, I feel like I got. I just like to hold things and hold them up. <laughs> yeah. But I self published that one because one, I although the stories have a lot of integrity, I didn't think that they would be what a publisher was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I just wanted to try it a different way. Yeah. I wanted. And, and since I've already accepted the fact that big publishers aren't really going to be too interested in short story collections, I said, okay, well, I'll just do it myself. I'll have total control yeah. of the artwork and everything. And um, also, it's a way to continue to talk about the first book because, you know, I do a lot of book fairs, um, a, a lot of holiday book fairs and uh, that sort of thing. And when people come to your table, if you've only got one title sitting there, they're just kind of like, you know, do I talk to this guy or not? Yeah. But if you've got two books there, they're like, oh, which book should I look at? You've already got them closer to the table. <laughs> um, it's, and then I, it's, one of the things that I'm really like, because I ran a writing collective in Indiana. Uh, we had about 450 people in it and we published, you know, books, uh, edited collections, literary magazine. We all it was self-published. And I always told people it was we called it professionalized amateurism. Like we were all editors. We're all professional writers. We didn't have a press. We used Lulu. We used Lightning Source. We used on-demand stuff. Um, but it was in bookstores, and we, you know, it was all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And you know, the st- when I started writing about this stuff twenty whatever years ago at Wired, like there was a stigma to that. And now the techno, I mean, if you buy a book in a bookstore, there's a really good chance it was printed on demand. There's a really yeah. good chance that there's not a warehouse with those books. And I tell people like. The only difference between what you know as an independent or self-published small press, whatever, is did that person go through an editorial process? Because right. big book publishers, we published our book through McGraw-Hill, our first one. They opened up a, a nonfiction imprint. We didn't have an editor and copy editor. We had to hire our own person. It looks like we've got a lag here. Um so for us, like there was no difference, right? Like it was we had to go out and do that stuff even though we had a major publisher. Yeah. Um, I, they don't really do the deep editing that they may have done at one time. Yeah. And so it really is incumbent upon the writer anyway to do a lot of that stuff. So the question is like, where does your stuff fit, right? Does it fit in small in the print? Like as a writer, you get to make a choice that maybe you didn't have 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, you, just to continue that, the third book, the one that's coming out in September is published with, it's not a university press. It's a small independent press. It's Main Street Rag Press. Um, they've been around for decades. Mm-hmm. So they, they're doing something that works Yeah. Um, on their own. And uh, the, the editor of Main Street Rag has educated me on how important, for example, the pre-sales are. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, yeah. never under, I've never understood the concept before. But as he <laughs> explained it to me, this... I mean, I, this literally, the pre-sales keep the lights on. Yeah. And I just thought, well, you know what? He knows what he's doing. He's been doing this literally for decades. <laughs> he's got, he has a great stable of writers. Um, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to embrace the pre-sales. And so I, I did a bunch of marketing that I've never done before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, right? Like, and, and then the pandemic hit, right? Because pre-sales have always been important for, you know, rankings and, you know, wherever you're at, but now with the pandemic with bookstores and stuff closed, 
like a lot of the discussion is like, okay, does that matter? I mean, it, it probably still matters to small presses, but like, what does that mm -hmm. even mean for the industry? Because now with outlets shut down and there's fewer places to buy, it's like, well, you can't go to Barnes and Noble and see a big display anymore. So do we get three months? Do we get six months? Or is it still going to be the two months leading up to that? Like, what does this new world look like? It's big and small presses. Yeah. And uh, I don't think everybody knows the answer. And nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and while there's, it's, it's not a great situation, we have made the best of it. I'd like to think just yeah. in terms of, you know, I'm seeing pre-sales on Twitter. I'm finding out about books that I probably never would have found out about. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to readings. Um, I'm going to, this is the weirdest, on Twitter, I'm going to readings from parts of the country and writers that I've never heard about. And I know you're from Appalachia. And just, I found this weird thing on Twitter where I've got this little hookup with all these different people in Appalachia. I didn't plan for that. I have another little matrix over in um, Pennsylvania, uh, your friend, um, Shannon McLeod. Yeah. Uh, I, and just somewhere that little network. So now I've got this in Pennsylvania and Northern Virginia, I've got this little, for lack of a better word, a writing community there. Yeah. I just, nev that never would have happened before. Yeah. It's to me, it's amazing. And, you know, I've told folks like my, sh like suddenly my show, I was interviewing people all over the world. Like I now have this literary community of people that I talk with on a regular basis who I would have never seen, heard of, come across any of that stuff. And while real life still matters way more to me than virtual spaces, I am really thankful for those spaces that have been created in this time, because as you know, writing is a horrifically terrible, boring soul crushing endeavor <laughs> and isolated <laughs> yeah like there's just nothing it's one of my favorite things and then i want to talk about stories of the new west um well i think kurt Vonnegut once wrote he would sit in a window in a store and write to show people that like writing doesn't have to be solitary you can actually do it around other people and i'm like you know my, my first book i wrote in bars and coffee shops so i know i can mm -hmm. but as i've gotten older i'm like no i don't need any of you people around yeah, me neither. Yeah. I can't I can't do that anymore. I can't concentrate. Like I hear yeah. something and suddenly my mind, I can't get into that flow. My mind is like, ooh, what's happening? Maybe I should tweet this fight this couple's having. Yeah, yeah. I I used I'm exactly the same way. I can't do it in coffee shops anymore. Yeah. I I I, I need more. I think it's I tell myself it's because I'm getting older and I can't. I just have trouble tracking my own thoughts or something like that, but maybe it's pandemic related or maybe I think it's we're old. Yeah, <laughs> I got bad news. I think it's because we're old. <laughs> As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. So most of what you've done, all of what you've done is short stories, right? Like that's, that is, that's your gig. That's your. Yeah. I mean, I have a novel in draft, but it's definitely in draft <laughs> and would likely to continue to be that way for a while. So, yeah, I've got three collections of short stories. So why do you gravitate to that form? Because a lot of people go to it in the MFA and then like agents tell them, like, you'll never sell a book. And I've talked to a lot of folks who then like, well, I guess I'm going to have to do a novel. Like, why did you stay in that form? Um, you know. I decided to become a writer when I was reading a collection of short stories in college by Barry Lopez. And um, I actually had, he has three or four very slim short story collections, River Notes, Desert Notes, uh, Winter Count. And uh, I was reading Desert Notes and River Notes in college. I read them both in one night and I really had an epiphany, you know, one of those things that maybe people have one of those just a few times in their lives. And I literally read the books in one night in my darkened dorm room. And I just said, this is what I want to do. His short stories resonated with me so much that I just said, I want to do that. I want to write short stories like these. I have things to say that land right here in this format. And, you know, going to an MFA program, you're right. You definitely, the emphasis is all on short stories. And my model, as I told myself was not just, I wanted to see, I saw what Barry Lopez was doing in his stories, but I also kind of saw his arc. You know, you can see that in the copyright page, you can see where he had published the stories in literary magazines and so forth. So, you know, I started that whole process and it just continued with that momentum. That was my goal. When I got the first book, short story book uh, published, I said, well, that that's it. I've completed that I've first it. arc. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it didn't go away and you had to keep doing it. That's right. Right. Yeah. It's, that's what I say. That's uh, it's like, well, that didn't so much complete an arc as it created a new one. <laughs> it's like walking up one of those hills and you're like, I'm at the peak. And then you're like, I'm not at the peak. There's more peak right. to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Both amazing and a nightmare. Like, shit, this is never going to end. Yeah. In fact, one of the most ironic things is, um, OK, the first book, I'm reaching for it again here. <laughs> The first book is actually like my second generation stories. They're more character driven. They still have a strong sense of place because that's just always been a baseline for me. Uh, but then I said, well, what about my Barry Lopez inspired stories? They're in the second collection. They're, they're, I sort of dug them back out 
and put them all together in the Did second I see collection. That call, it's called Older Stories. Is that the subtitle? Well, don't yeah, put it up called... in front of your face. Don't stop putting the book in front of you. Move the book out of the camera. It's called it's Older called Stories, right? So this Canyon's is like that's... Older Stories. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then the third generation, 3.0, Williams 3.0, is the new collection. And this one is, they're, they're yet another departure. I'm, I'm looking at other readers, or I'm looking at other writers as I'm writing my stories. You should always be reading while you're writing stories. Oh, shit, and, I can't do that. I can't do that because I start writing like other people when I do that. Yeah. Well, then it's always important to read really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I read all the time, but when I sit down to like do essays and stuff, like I find if I'm like, oh, I'm going to read Gore Vidal, all of a sudden I'm like writing these long obtuse things. And I'm like, that's not at all. Like, what am I doing? Uh huh. I get sucked yeah. into other people's stuff. I think that the challenge there is it's okay as long as you're not reading something that is so much like what you're doing that it becomes imitative. Yeah. Well, that's but what I do though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but for me, like, you know, Isaac Babel, the Russian writer from the early Soviet days, uh, I was reading some of his stories while I was writing these. And so there's a real intersection there. Or or reading Anton Chekhov and writing about something happening in Montana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I see that. I see that. Like as an when I read, I typically read like, I mean, I don't know. I always tell people, like, I think I read different, like as a professional editor and writer, I just read differently. I don't read to see if I enjoy it. I read to figure out what the author's trying to do, how they're trying to do it, and like where they're trying to take me, right? And so I get in trouble when I read while I write because I'm deconstructing stuff. And then I sit down to write and I'm like, oh, I wonder, like, how would they yeah. do that? And I start doing their stuff and I'm like, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what is the, we're going to end with this. So my sort of premise is that people write books and I don't know if this is going to be true with short stories. I've not, I've not had anybody who, who does specifically short story collections, but I have this premise that people write books because they are, there's a question that they want to explore. There's something that they're trying to deconstruct whether it's fiction, nonfiction essays, whatever it is there. So what was it that inspired this, collection like was there a question or was there a series of questions like how does that work with short stories um you know that's a good question because uh when you're trying to get a set of sort short stories published you have to debate how much do i want the stories to have sort of like cohesion within yeah. themselves um i mean like if the stories have too much cohesion you might be just telling the same story over and over <laughs> again yeah. uh but but obviously uh having stories set in a certain place creates quite a bit of cohesion or having stories that have a common theme has a, has cohesion, but, and, you know, to some extent, uh, these stories, they're all set in the contemporary West. Mm -hmm. And so there's a strong element of place, which to some extent creates some cohesion there. But I'd also, as I look through these stories, when I, cause I have, I got others, I could do a fourth collection. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the thing that ties these together for me is the idea that um, all the characters in the stories are doing risk management. They've been taking some risks, and the story is not so much in the risk that the characters have taken, but how do they handle the aftermath of that risk? Um, I'll give you a good example. I was in a critique group once, and I wrote a story about an affair that happened, and uh, the two characters had the affair, and uh, they 
dealt with the aftermath, a lot of guilt and conflicting feelings there. Uh, and then one of the people in the critique group said, oh, I knew they were going to have sex. That wasn't even interesting to me. That was just a given. She said, you need to start the story the morning after. And I just thought that is it. R managing the risk is more compelling than the risk itself. And so if there's one thing that ties these stories together, which I think aligns with the history of the West is also just the idea of we take risks in life, personal risk, emotional risks, and how we process the aftermath, how we create a, a narrative that helps us move on. That's the compelling story. And I think that's really true, especially in the West, because think about in over these centuries, why have folks come out West? They've come out in the promise of something new. They've come out seeking fame and fortune. They, they've come out for, well, resource exploitation, just <laughs> putting that one. And you know what? Those dreams often don't come true. And uh, then they're out here to manage, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, although these stories are set in the contemporary West, it's one of the oldest stories in the West. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> like, just because it's happening, like, history has its way of staying in a place where it's at right like i mean yeah. being from appalachia i'm like 1800 ain't that far away ago like yeah you know, when i talk to people about they're like why is this i'm like you got to understand what happened at the beginning because these people haven't left like my people have been there for 350 years and like those stories get passed down and whether it's yeah whether you mean to or not i find that place oftentimes particularly I don't know if they're rural places, but like, you know, like Montana has less than what, like a million people. I like those places that are small tend to have people that are there generationally and the, and mm -hmm. the sort of oral culture that gets passed down tends to be something that you remember. Right. So it doesn't like it makes sense that, yeah, like that risk thing is still there in the West. Yeah. And the place is is well it's not timeless but there's a sense of timelessness and i'm sure that's true in appalachia too. yeah and it creates to some extent it makes your characters smaller it can <laughs> it can add insignificance in the greater picture of things and certainly that's part of our personal struggle in life is to find our significance yeah and you know there is a um to me there is a comfort that I'm, I can go back those 350 years and go, look, no matter what's happening to me today, I can find answers in what's going on. Like, not that everybody was doing things right, but like you see where things went wrong. You see like mistakes that were made. And because they're sort of all, I am part of those people. I'm like, okay, let's do better. Like, let's figure this out. Like, or let's try something new. Like, I don't, it's not like you've gone to the moon and we're like, uh, shit, what do we do now? Like, there's no antecedent to that, right? Like, that brings anxiety to me. But this sort of long arc of history, you know, the good and the bad of it does give you a sense of, like, what comes next or what can we do better? Can yeah. I ask, did you consciously set out with those questions or were you writing stories and then sort of look back and were like, oh, shit, I got a, I got a theme here developing? Yeah, that's it was the latter. I I conscious each story has its own sort of lifespan. Each story has its own arc, its own reason for me to want to write it. Uh, and then you look back later and you say, OK, I got to bang together a short story collection. And you you look for that coherent element. Um, you can have diversity within your stories as long as the reader is cued that there's going to be that kind of diversity. 
you can't have a bunch of realistic fiction and then suddenly pop in a wildly experiment. But as long as the range is clear within the first several stories, then the reader is going to be okay with that diversity as well. It's mainly just in retrospect, you look for that coherent element that you think ties the stories together. And then that's your collection. Do you psychologically ever ask yourself, I wonder if I was exploring these things without knowing it? Oh, yes. Gosh, I, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, there's a, a writer named Chrissy Kaloya. You should totally have her on your program. <laughs> little plug there. She's, she's doing an interview with me and it's going to come out in a couple of months. But she, um, she asked me all of these questions about things that I just kind of like, yeah, I think uh, I don't want to admit it to myself, but I think you found some themes there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because when I interview people to do long form stuff, that happens on the show all the time, right? Like uh, multiple times people afterwards have said like, well, that felt like therapy. But when it comes to short stories, I don't know, like that's a world into which I it's like that in poetry. I don't really know how that process works. So I don't know, like, but it's good to know that you're like, oh, yeah, no, all of us have that same like, oh, shit. Yeah, I was working things out and didn't really realize I was yeah. working things out. Yeah, she said, you've got some father son, father son stuff going on in these stories. <laughs> <laughs> I like her. She sounds good. So Stories of the New West, it's coming out. Did you say it's in September, right? Correct. And pre-orders are up now. Like, where can people get it? Is it like Bookshop and Amazon or do you go to the publisher? Like, where's it at? You could go to my website. Um, evanmorganwilliams.com or you could go to the Main Street Rag website and I think he's got it listed on Barnes and Noble too gotcha. uh, but yeah the pre-orders are now at a quite substantial discount by the way and then it then it launches in September yeah and we know for everybody who's on the everybody who's listening knows uh, if you go to Main Street Rag Press when you're doing dealing with small and independent presses it's always best to buy direct because yeah. that is where they get the most bang for the buck yeah, that's why he's got it on a discount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so go there. Well, listen, uh, Evan, it was wonderful having you on the show. Um, this has been fantastic. I can't wait to pick these up and read about um, all of the issues that you have, and then I'll get to know you that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was a delight. I I could chat with you all day. This is, this is why I listen to your program, too. <laughs> when I listen to your program, there are so many times I want to cut in because the author says all these interesting things and I keep wanting to say, yeah, me too, me too. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm trying to create a virtual community of writers that are like, oh yeah, shit, we're all crazy in the same way. I think you have done it. <laughs> good. All right, man, you have a good day. All right, take care. Well, that was Evan Morgan Williams. His short story collection, Stories of the New West, is out in September. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard and saw on the show today, do us those two favors. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And particularly, if you listen to Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a written review and a star and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget... These video podcasts come out basically Mondays and Fridays, although we're going to be having a few more uh, just because we've been interviewing so many great authors. You can find them on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel, or you can catch the audio version wherever you listen to the Downtown Writers Jam. Speaking of, the jam comes out every Wednesday, so get subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writers Jam. 
Until the next time, I'll see you around the internet. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.